Welcome back to uh, Centerpoint, and uh, this is uh, this is our 55th lesson since we uh, started together, and uh, we are looking at the order salutis, uh, the application of redemption, and uh, tonight we want to talk about adoption. Uh, let's pray together, Heavenly Father. We thank you for uh, the grace that is revealed to us in the gospel, that you take the children of Adam and reckon them in the Lord Jesus to be the children of God, that now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him even as he is. As we think together this evening on this uh, extraordinary blessing, uh, we ask that you would write it upon our hearts, draw us to yourself, help us to know again the witness of your spirit with ours, that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So hear us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, if you have an outline and uh, if you're visiting, make sure that you do have an outline. Uh, they're on the desk uh, up here. And uh, a reminder once again of uh, the topic of the Order Salutis, uh, Union with Christ, Effectual Calling. Uh, sometimes known as irresistible grace, uh, regeneration, repentance, and faith, justification. And the last time uh, we were, uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about definitive sanctification. And you may recall uh, that we said about definitive sanctification that it, it belongs in the same category of thought as justification because it's a legal, forensic declaration of God. It's not so much God doing something in us, but God saying something about us judicially and uh, forensically. And adoption also belongs in that same category, uh, a judicial forensic declaration of God. Uh, now, drop down to uh, number three, uh, union with Christ. Uh, you remember that when we began at the beginning of this uh, semester, back at the beginning of September, uh, when we began to talk about the, the way in which we are to think about how all that Christ has achieved for us is actually made ours, how how do we come into possession, personal possession, of all that Christ has achieved for us? And we said then that we're, we're to think of it in terms, first of all, and, and principally, you remember the word, the architectonic principle. Uh, I'm not sure where that comes from. I think it comes from uh, Dick Gaffin. Uh, it's a, it's a, one of those 
one of those terms, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head, uh, and you find yourself repeating it, the architect, even if you don't know what it means, you find yourself repeating it, the architectonic principle, like we've, we've said, it's like the, the, the hub of a wheel in which all the spokes of that wheel attached to that hub are effectual calling and regeneration and repentance and faith and, and justification and definitive sanctification and adoption and so on. Now, there's a text here that I want to think about for a minute. Romans 1, 4, it's one of these very significant uh, texts in the New Testament. Uh, This is right at the very beginning of Romans, uh, in almost the introductory comment that Paul is making in the greeting, speaking now about Jesus, was declared and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you can read that text and completely misunderstand what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying that he wasn't the Son of God before his resurrection and that he was the Son of God after uh, the resurrection. He, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't adopted as, as a son uh, there, are, there were and are interpretations that Jesus took, uh, that God took uh, a man by the name of Jesus uh, who was a devout and holy man and he made him into the Son of God, adopting him at the resurrection. Now, that's not what Paul is saying. But he is saying that the resurrection was, was a witness to, and, and, and look at, look at the, st- the, the quotation I have under B uh, from Richard Gaffin. This is wonderful. This, this is a sentence you have to repeat ten times. A judicially constitutive declaration of sonship. Now, it's not saying that he wasn't the son of God before. He was always the son of God. The son of God is a divine title. He was the son of God before he was incarnate. But at the resurrection, this was, the resurrection was, was like the, the public acclamation of the father that this indeed was the Son of God, um, declared to be the Son of God, and notice the following words, in power. Before the resurrection, he was the Son of God in weakness, wasn't he? You know, if you met Jesus in the street in Jerusalem one day, you, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily look like what, what you might think of as the Son of God. When he was hanging on the cross, he didn't look like the Son of God. I think that's what the devil said, in effect, to Jesus. You don't look like the Son of God. Why don't you act like the Son of God? He was declared to be the Son of God. Now, as we think about all that Jesus has achieved and how that is applied to us, one of the things that coming into union and fellowship with Jesus involves is sonship. Just as he is the son of God, in a unique sense to be sure, so we too are sons of God. Actually, what, what, what did Jesus say in one of the statements he made in one of the resurrection appearances? Don't touch me. 
because I'm not yet ascended to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Now, older interpretations of that passage used to, used to draw a distinction. My Father in one sense and your Father in another sense. But actually, I think Jesus is saying the very opposite of that. That he's saying that w- one of the great privileges that we have by virtue of his death and resurrection is we get to meet Jesus' his Father. And he's our Father. We are brought into a family in which Jesus is our elder brother. That's the privilege. Now, uh, number four, um, we, we don't need to spend any great deal of time here, but uh, um, ad- adoption as um, a doctrine um, Adoption as, as, a, as, a, as a loci of theology has not actually received a great deal of attention. Uh, some, some go as far as to say that before the 19th, middle of the 19th century, adoption wasn't given any attention at all. That's not true. You only have to read Calvin's Institutes, and one of, the, one of the things that pops out at you as you read the Institutes is the number of times Calvin refers to God as our Father. Uh, so, so the idea of sonship uh, was, was deeply significant to Calvin in the Institutes. Um, some uh, Reformed theologians uh, devoted space uh, to adoption, and I've got some examples there. Uh, the Westminster Confession has a single, uh, a single uh, section. Uh, it's, a, it's a chapter, chapter 12 of the Confession is on adoption, but it only has one section. You know, most, most sections of the Westminster Confession have four or five or six or, or more, if, uh, as in the first chapter on Scripture, m- more than that. But, but the, the, the statement uh, on adoption in the Westminster Confession uh, is, uh, is very succinct. And actually, it's just a pulling together of statements from Scripture itself. It's a concatenation, it's a, it's, a, it's a coming together of allusions to lots of passages in the New Testament referring to adoption. But there's, there's little theological reflection on the doctrine of adoption in the Westminster Confession. Uh, again, I'm not going to go into this here, but... but most older systematic theologies uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, even in the 1900s, subsumed adoption as a kind of final thought in the discussion of justification. So typically in a systematic theology, Burkhoff would be typical, uh, there will be a chapter on justification and then at the very end of the chapter there will be a little section on adoption as a subcategory of justification. Because adoption, like justification, is a forensic, legal, uh, declarative status uh, that God uh, bestows um, upon us. Uh, and, and, and D there, uh, just, just glancing, and that's all I did today, was glance at uh, some of the recent uh, biblical theologies that have crossed my desk, uh, Schreiner, Marshall, and Beale. Uh, and these are books that are 700 pages each, maybe, maybe more. 
Uh, I looked up adoption in the index, uh, and there were just three or four references. Uh, not not, not uh, all of these references just being a few lines, really, uh, uh, each. So, again, uh, adoption perhaps hasn't received the attention um, that it deserves. Uh, there's an enormous amount of discussion about the background. When you read the concept of adoption in the New Testament in Galatians, for example, um, what's the background? Is Paul alluding to the practice of adoption in Roman law? And certainly older commentaries uh, will, will, will suggest that the background is Roman law. Um, these days, uh, that has been challenged, and, and perhaps, perhaps, as in everything else in the New Testament, the background, as Dr. Davis will love to tell you, the background is the Old Testament. Uh, and that there is, in fact, a doctrine of adoption uh, in the Old Testament. Um, Perhaps, since adoption is mentioned in letters uh, that Paul specifically wrote to colonies that were Roman colonies uh, in particular, perhaps there's a little bit of both going along, but that's fodder for lots of research and scholarly articles, none of which... Uh, I want to address now, so let's move on. Uh, the, the character of adoption. Uh, and, and let me look at this negatively and positively. And let me address it, first of all, um, theologically. Negatively, it is not the same as regeneration. Now, in order to be adopted, you need to be regenerated, you need to be born again, but it is not the same as regeneration. In, in, the same way, uh, in the same way that our status uh, as an individual can be distinguished from our actual birth and our actual, our, our actual, uh, our actual generation, if you like. Um, so it's not the same as regeneration, though it is um, to, be, uh, to be associated with our regeneration. Uh, And then secondly, adoption is not the same as justification. Uh, Let's read uh, uh, James Buchanan. James Buchanan, 19th century Scottish, um, one of the great uh, Scottish theologians of the 19th century, uh, uh, someone that you should uh, should trust. Um, uh, His book on justification is still uh, one of the best, I think, books on justification from the old perspective on justification point of view. Uh, let's, let's read what he says here a little bit. Adoption is also distinct in some respects from justification, for although both denote a change of relation, right, judicial, forensic, status, both denote a change of relation, it may be affirmed that according to the scriptures, pardon, acceptance, and adoption are distinct privileges the one rising above the other in the order in which they have been stated. That if it be conceivable that a sinner might have been pardoned and accepted without being accepted to eternal life, it is equally conceivable that he might have been both pardoned and accepted without being adopted as a son. Uh, Let let me translate that into into an illustration that he's alluding to here. Imagine a judge. I mean, you can imagine a scenario in which a judge pronounces somebody not guilty. That's justification. We are pronounced not guilty, even though we are guilty. We are pronounced not guilty because Christ has taken our guilt. 
But that's not the same as saying, as a judge saying to the one that he has pronounced not guilty, you are now my son and you can come and live in my home. That's adoption. So, so adoption is, is another step again. It is based on the subsequent step of being pronounced not guilty of justification, um, but it is, it is more than that. Well, let's think of it positively. Uh, and let's think of it along, uh, along three lines of thought here. Uh, adoption as the focus of creation, adoption as the pattern of redemption, and adoption as the goal of restoration. Uh, let's start with adoption as the focus of creation. Uh, the question is sometimes asked, you know, this is the sort of question theologians sometimes ask and, and love to talk about is, was Adam placed in the Garden of Eden in order to pass the probationary period and then become a child of God and then become a son that he had to pass through probation in order to become a son? Or was Adam created in the garden as a son to begin with to pass through a period of probation? Uh, the latter, I think, is the correct answer, although there have been those uh, within the Reformed community who have suggested the former. But, but I think the latter is the correct answer for these three considerations. One, that Adam was placed in a garden with, with lavish provision. In fact, he was entitled to enjoy everything that was in the garden, except for one thing. Now, that, that, that's, that's conducive with the idea of someone being in the family. Uh, this, this, is, this, is, this is fatherly lavish treatment of Adam. Secondly, Adam bore the image of God, and he bore the image of God prior to the probationary period. But he didn't go through the probationary period and then bore the image of God. He was created in the image of God. So there's lavish provision. He, he bears the image of God. And, and, uh, and thirdly, the, the probation is the probation of a son. Uh, look at, um, uh, look at uh, I'll read it to you, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, uh, where God says in the second creation account, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, the probation is prefaced by what? You may eat of every tree in the garden. That's, that's, that's like saying, look, you're my son. You, you, may, do, you may do, you, 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 you have access to everything that is mine, except for this one thing. Right? So the probation is actually set within the context of um, the provision that God had given to Adam. So, so Adam was created as a child of God. As a son of God. Adoption as, uh, as the focus of creation. Now, why am I saying that? Because 
salvation, redemption, is always restorative. The purpose and goal of redemption is always, always to restore what was lost. So when we think about what is ours in Jesus, it is restoring what Adam lost. And what did he lose? He lost sonship. Those who are in Adam lost that status. And redemption restores that. Uh, Secondly, adoption as the pattern of redemption. Uh, Let me pick up a, a couple of passages here. Uh, One in Exodus 4, uh, verses 22 and 23, and I say to you, let my son go. Uh, This is God now speaking about the Exodus to Moses, and, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So this is what Moses was to take to Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may serve me. The Exodus, which becomes a pattern of redemption, it becomes the, 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 the great picture word of redemption, being set free from bondage and captivity into the liberty of the land of promise and of Canaan. That becomes a picture of redemption. And how does God, uh, how does God uh, word that, that picture with the idea, with the concept of Israel as a son? As a son. Uh, Something similar in Ezekiel 16. Uh, And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin, this is Ezekiel in captivity in Babylon, speaking about uh, what was to be the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, uh, imminent as Ezekiel spoke. Uh, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of a land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling uh, cloths, nor I pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live I said to you, in your blood, live. And then, then there's a further description of how, how, how this child grew. But it's, it's the picture of adoption. Here's, a, here's an abandoned child that God, that God takes as his own. So, so the language here of restoration, the restoration of, of, uh, of uh, the people of God back to Jerusalem, which is part of the message of Ezekiel, is... is is couched using the picture language of sonship. Israel as a son, Israel as a child. So adoption as the pattern of redemption. So when you come into the New Testament, what are you expecting to see by way of language for adoption, uh, for, for, for redemption? Adoption. God taking an abandoned child and adopting it as his own. And then thirdly, adoption as the goal of restoration. The focus of creation, the pattern of redemption, the goal of restoration. Take a passage like Romans 8.29, 
um, where, where Paul is, uh, is uh, reaching uh, that, uh, that peroration. He has, he has just said uh, in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What's the goal of redemption? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus with his brothers. That's the picture. The goal of redemption is Jesus and his brothers. Jesus and his family. So you see it as the focus of creation. You see it as the pattern of redemption. And you see it as the goal of restoration. First uh, John 3, uh, 1, 1 to 3, uh, which contains that statement uh, for... For now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. We are children of God now, uh, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Adoption then as the goal of restoration. Now what is adoption? Uh, and we can summarize it, I think, uh, with, with uh, a, a negative and a positive idea. Uh, we can summarize it by, by uh, saying that adoption involves breaking ties with our old family and inaugurating us into a new family. You know, what is... Uh, uh, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is that. It's breaking ties with the old family and developing patterns that are, that are um, in harmony with the new family. Uh, remember who you are now. Uh, one of the great, uh, one of the great uh, uh, aspects of sanctification in the New Testament is, to, is, for, is for us to remember who we are. Uh, that we are those who are in union with Christ. We are those who have been adopted into the household and family of God. Uh, we, are, we are God's children now. Uh, take a passage like, uh, uh, like uh, Galatians uh, 4. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, this, is, uh, this is Galatians 4.1. I mean that the heir, so long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's Paul thinking of adoption, um, sonship in the family of God. Uh, I think he's using here 
the image of the old covenant versus the new covenant, so that when he says when the fullness of time had come, he's thinking of when, of, uh, when redemptive history in the Old Testament had reached its climax, and, and Jesus came when the fullness of time uh, had come, God sent forth his uh, son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does that say to you? Well, I think one of the things it says is, as the quote, I think, on the very cover uh, displays, look at the quote, uh, look at Jim Packer's quote uh, from Knowing God. Uh, This is the the cover page, page one, the first quotation, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Actually, that's very telling. An unbeliever is more likely to say, oh God, whereas a believer is more likely to say, father, what are you doing? Why is this happening? It's uh, instinctive uh, within us to relate to God as our Heavenly Father. Um, and I think that's what Paul is saying in Galatians 4. Uh, we've, been, we've been brought now into a relationship in which the dominating thought of God is our Heavenly Father, a, a, new, a new family. Um, uh, look at Romans 8 and verse 15. Romans 8 and verse 15, a a sharing, sorry for the uh, big words here, but a sharing in the eschatological, the future character of the present experience of salvation. Look at uh, Romans 8, 15. Uh, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, several, uh, several interesting things about that verse. Uh, first of all, the verb to cry, kratzo, uh, is a verb that's used uh, almost exclusively in the New Testament for cries uh, in moments of anguish and, uh, and, and agony and dereliction. It's the verb uh, that the gospel writers would use of Jesus on the cross when he, when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and Paul is saying, what is, what, what is the basis? He's talking about the Holy Spirit here as the spirit of, and you notice, the spirit of adoption. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is he is the spirit of adoption. You know, one of the, one of the problems, you know, I, I love tradition as much as anyone else, so please don't, don't, don't write me emails or anything. Um, but when we say the Apostles' Creed, you know, I believe in the Holy Ghost, you know, it's probably the worst thing we could ever say about, about the Holy Spirit is to call him a ghost, particularly this week. 
I'm not going there. Um, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is not a ghost. Uh, it, it's, it's archaic language. We, that's the tradition that, that we, we're still employing, that old language. But I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's called here in Romans 8.15, he's called the spirit of adoption. What is it that the spirit does in a moment of anguish? Paul actually isn't thinking here of a moment on a, on a kind of mountaintop experience of God. He's actually, he's actually thinking, I think, here of the worst possible moment that you can imagine, a, a, a moment of pain and agony and, 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 and trial. And what is the instinct? The Holy Spirit enables you, helps you to say, Abba, Father. That's his ministry. When you're at your lowest, when you're at your lowest, the Spirit comes. And even in that low point, even, even, if, that, even if that expression is one, of, is one of almost desperation, it is still desperation that is coming to our Heavenly Father. Father, hear my cry. That's, that's the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit of uh, Adoption. Uh, another title of the Spirit uh, in the next verse, uh, in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The, the, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, the Holy Spirit as the personal representative agent of the Lord Jesus. Think of the upper room. What did Jesus say in the upper room to the disciples? I go away, but I will come to you again. Right? I go away, but I'm coming to you again. I think he's, he's talking, I think, about Pentecost mainly. And on Pentecost, the Spirit, as the personal representative agent of the Lord Jesus, descends this is the age of the Holy Spirit, but the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus. Like the floodlights around First Presbyterian Church at night. You know, when you leave, especially if you parked on that side, as I have, you're going to walk through the, um, what, do I, what am I supposed to call it? Churchyard. Sorry, I was about to say something else. Uh, when I walk through the churchyard, um, sometimes I'll stop and, and, just, and just take a breath because it's a beautiful sight. Uh, you know, when you're surrounded by it, you, you tend to take it for granted, but it's, it's one of the most beautiful sights that you can ever say. I, I'll, sometimes I'll take a picture of it and send it to Sinclair Ferguson, and, and, uh, and, and I always get a response um, and how he misses it. And uh, he, by the way, he was playing golf in Augusta yesterday, so don't be feeling too sorry for him. Uh, there's a picture which I'm trying to get, and if you have this picture of him in a bunker in Augusta yesterday, I need that picture. <laughs> um, but w when, you, when you see, and there are floodlights all around the building, you, you can just go out that door right now because it's, it's dark already, so you can go out that door and have a look. No one is going to say, what, what beautiful halogen bulbs. 
I mean, what, what, what phenomenal um, uh, electrician put this together? No, what, you, what you're going to say is, look at that beautiful building. That's what you're going to say. The lights draw attention to the building. The spirit draws attention to Christ. He witnesses with our spirit, not so much about himself, but our sonship in the family in which Jesus is our elder brother. It is our union with Christ that the spirit draws attention to. He witnesses with our spirit. That we are the children of God. That has to be one of the most phenomenal things about our existence right now, isn't it? The indwelling of the third person of the Trinity. He, he indwells us. And he witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. Um, back in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's, there's, in verse 15, there's the spirit of adoption. In verse 16, there's the witness of the Spirit. But before that, in verse 14, there's the leading of the Spirit. Now, Paul isn't talking there in verse 14 about guidance. He's not saying that the Spirit leads you to be a doctor or, or an electrician or a plumber or a widget maker. Uh, that's, you know, who to marry or where to live or what college to go to. That's not what Paul is thinking about. He's talking about the, the leading of the Spirit. What has he said in the previous verse? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does the Spirit enable you to do as children, as sons of God? He leads you to do what? To put to death the deeds of the body. So part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead the children of God into an activity that puts sin to death that mortifies, that kills remaining sin, habitual sin. Uh, and then drop down to verse 23, it's, it's 7D. Uh, the spirit as the, as the first fruits, and, and not only the creation, is talked about creation groaning and travailing in birth, waiting for the renewal of all things, you know, earthquakes and tsunamis and so on, all of these are, are in indicators of the, of the world of creation itself out of joint, anticipating, longing for its renewal, the new heavens and the new earth. And not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We are already adopted as sons. But there's an aspect in which we are anticipating our adoption as sons. We are already justified, but there's an aspect in which we are waiting for the vindication of the day of judgment too. We live in the tension between the now and the not yet. 
That's, that's where we are. We're in the last days. Not because Jesus is coming tomorrow, but we've been in the last days since Pentecost. We've always been in the last days. Since the moment you were born, we've been in the last days. God spoke in times past by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We're in the last days. Not only does creation groan, but we groan in our trials, in our tribulations, in our striving against sin, in, in, in the ones we win and the ones we don't. And it's like creation. We, we're, we find ourselves sometimes groaning. Don't you find yourself on some days, you just, all you can do is groan. You know, somebody says to you, how, how are you doing? Fine. You know, and you put on that plastic smile and, and fine, everything is wonderful, rosy, great, wonderful, couldn't be better. Actually, truth is I'm groaning. That's the truth of it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just trying to put one foot in front of another and not go backwards. Actually, I'm just trying to stand still at the minute because the, the headwind is so great. I'm just trying not to go backwards. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to stay still. I'm groaning. And we, uh, verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits, I think, in the Old Testament sense of, of, of the first of the crop in anticipation of a harvest to follow. That would be so much better to celebrate this week. The first fruits, the crop, the apples, the apples. Who brought me apples? Somebody brought me apples. It's not here. Apples. Those, those first pickings from the tree in anticipation of a crop. The Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit witnessing with my spirit is like, well, it's like, it's like the guarantee. It's like the anticipation of an entire harvest to come. We're children of God. We are members of God's family. We bear God's name. We are Christians now. We're in that family now. And we break our ties with the old family and, 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 and we, we express uh, those aspects that are conducive to the new family in anticipation of what is to come. For now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. Uh, there are many privileges, and I've outlined uh, five of them here. Uh, let, let me uh, just pick out a couple of them. We just have a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, B, cross out acceptance. I'm not sure why I've, I typed in acceptance, but and put in provision. Will you do that? Cross out acceptance and put in provision. This is the passage in Matthew 6 where, where Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about tomorrow what you eat and drink and, and, and put on and so on. God, God clothes the birds of the air. Don't you think your heavenly Father will, will provide for you? But the basis of that statement is, he is your heavenly Father. 
He'll provide for you. He may not give you what you want, because it's not always good for you. But he'll always give you what you need. Always. Uh, liberty. Uh, I'm thinking here of uh, the parable of the older brother and the prodigal son. What's the meaning of that parable, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Well, wh- wh- one, of the, one of the key issues of that parable is, this, is the statement of the older brother. When the, when the prodigal repents and the fatted calf is killed and, and the ring is put on his finger and the cloak upon his, uh, his back, the older brother says, all these years I have been slaving for you. And then, and then his father says to him uh, in verse 31, son, you've always been with me. You've always been my son. The, the, the point, at least one of the points of that parable, I think, is to say, you know, that's sometimes the way we view our status. We slave for him. Is that how you view it? When he asks of you obedience, when he asks for you to walk in a certain path of righteousness, do you view that as slavery? Or do you view that as the delightful response of a heart that's been blessed with the gospel? Nothing is too great for God to demand of me because he has given me absolutely everything. And then uh, let me pick up uh, discipline. In Hebrews 12, those whom he loves, he disciplines. Remember the passage? Coming perhaps from a Roman context where the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, one, the one who isn't a son uh, isn't disciplined because he's not a son. The illegitimate one isn't disciplined. But he disciplines the son. He disciplines those who are his own because they are his own. And sometimes God will discipline us. Not because he doesn't love us, but on the contrary, because he does love us. Because he loves us so much that he's absolutely determined to do whatever it takes to ensure that you get to glory and that you be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Well, we've just skimmed the surface here of uh, a a very important truth uh, in the application of redemption our status as sons, our adoption into God's family. Well, let's pray, and then after a few minutes, we'll segue uh, into our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the wonders and, uh, and, and glories of what it means to be a child of God, that you are our Heavenly Father, that we may come before you and call you Abba, Father. To know you in this intimate way, to be able to speak to you. And to be able to bring to you our concerns, our needs, our trials, our hurts, our, our dreams and ambitions and the things that scare us. We thank you that we are part of a family with brothers and sisters. And we thank you for the community into which you have brought us.
Thank you for those times. Uh, we think of those times when we sit around the table and uh, we remember that we are in a family in which our elder brother gave his life for us. So bless us, uh, Lord, as we further contemplate these things. Write your word uh, upon our hearts and all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.